Welcome to an extremely joyous edition of the Boyd Meets World podcast. I've got two new guests in the pod this time, and they both happen to be former D1 athletes. Uh, first up is former Utah basketball walk-on, current friend of mine, and future degenerate gambler, Quinn Sterling. Uh, Quinn came on and reacted to a stunning Husky win over Kansas, and then we got off the rails and talked about other sports as well. Uh, and the next, next, I went outside of my comfort zone to talk about the Sounders. I know, right? As they head into their second straight MLS Cup on Saturday, and to talk Sounders and a little U.S. Uh, men's team as well, I brought in my great friend and former Seattle youth soccer star, Michael Roberts. This is a good one, but I want to apologize for my sound from the outset. I was a little crackly and then tried to fix it, uh, but it's still not where I would want it, so I apologize for that. Uh, luckily, Quinn and Mike sound great, so just listen to them anyway. All right, enjoy it. Quinn Sterling to talk a little UW basketball. Quinn is a great example of the difference between your friend who's really effing good at basketball and then high-level college and pro player. So thank you so much, Quinn, for being that reference point for me. Quinn's joining us from a boardroom in Seattle right now, ready to talk about the 74-65 drubbing that UW gave Kansas last night. How's it going, Q? Thank you for having me. It's going well. Yeah, I am in our our, uh, office conference room. So if I start talking about your uh, your portfolio's high yield bond exposure, you'll know I got walked in on by my boss. My TPS so. reports uh, need a need a, yep. a a deep look. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking back to your illustrious career at UW, and um, I can just say the words Mississippi Valley State, and you know you know what I'm talking about, right? I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I once uh, I think the the box score Quinn is like. Seven, four minutes, five points, no, four minutes, seven points, uh, a three, and then four free, th- free throws. It was it was like an efficiency barnstorming. You got in there and just took care of business. I blacked out. I don't remember it, so you, who knows? Yeah, uh, it, I was one of like 2,500 people in Heckhead that day, and uh, I will never forget what I saw. So, um, yeah, Quinn is... Uh, uh, was on the UW team from the 2012-13 season and the 2013-14 season. So he got two seasons of, of exposure deep in the heart of the UW program. And uh, I don't think you saw anything quite like what we saw last night. No, we, we got to the glorious NIT, but that's about it. Yeah, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, no one wanted to be in the glorious NIT. No, we were actually, um, I think I was a junior, when we, or I think I was a sophomore actually when we first went. And that's when, we, that's when all of our buddies go to Cabo. And I think a couple of the guys on the team also had uh, had trips trying to plan for for spring break, and we were all watching it together. And I was watching with a couple of the guys, and we let out some some serious cheers, and we didn't get in our second year. It was pretty sweet. Yeah, there there comes a, t- a point where it is uh, it is no longer a fun idea to go go play BYU. No, no. You, we were watching it together, and as soon as you got in, you had to run out and start practicing, or you got to go home, and it was. Uh, it was pretty obvious what the people wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, so last night's win, UW, I mean, I I was, like, 
op- not even I was nowhere near optimistic. I was about to say that that's a total lie. I was very curious heading into last night's game, um, and I I think it took a good like all of the first half and then most of the second half for me to really realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've watched a couple. Uh, I think I've watched every game except like one. Maybe missed a half of one. But I mean, to me, they've looked like a team that is is going to be able to you know pick off game a game here or two. They're not going to be great, but I did not expect them to pick off a Kansas. I was thinking maybe they'd get Oregon at home or something like that. But right. to take Kansas out on the road was definitely not what anyone was anyone was uh, expecting. Yeah, they beat they go into. Kansas City, Missouri, and beat Kansas by nine. They beat Seattle U by four, uh, and UC yeah. Irvine by seven, and both of those were in Seattle. So um, this was quite the exponential leap for the, the Mike Hopkins Lebowskis. I think they had to hang on. I mean, against Seattle U, too, they had to hang on until the end there, so this was not definitely not an expected result. Yeah, it was a, it was a hang-on sloopy game for sure. Um, so take us through, what, was your, what were your like major surprise points about how – how you'd have played other than the result. I mean, winning by a nine, beating Kansas, even hanging with them is shocking, but more like process related. Like what was going on during that game that, that surprised you? Uh, I think the first thing probably was, and I think we had talked about this a little bit last night after the game was, would be the play of Dave Chris. Oh yeah. He was a guy last year that was, I mean, just did not look like a division one basketball point guard in the slightest could barely dribble with his right hand he couldn't i think his assist to turnover ratio was totally backwards it was one to two or something like that yeah. it was not good and it was i mean that was the team really struggled last year I, I mean it struggled the whole year but when Fultz went out and he had to play point it was just it, they could get into zero offense and to see what he did last night um didn't take a bad shot he was able to create and get in the lane and dish, which he never did before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's positive to see because I think one of our big complaints about the past couple of years of Romar, the last couple of years of his kind of when it, when it got down was just the player development wasn't there for a lot of guys. A lot of guys came in as, as four-star recruits and left with the same skills that they came in with. And so it's pretty exciting to see a guy – through one summer with a new coaching staff, I guess all not all new with since Will's still there. Yeah, but to see him develop as a as a point guard was pretty exciting to see. Yeah, with Chris specifically, first of all, I don't know why anyone is letting or is like not getting up at it. Like like the fact that he can drive is uh, it's more a product of the fact that he he is normally a shooter. So I don't know if this is gonna this is gonna hold or the scouting report just said get up at this guy's face and then he went yeah. Back um, but I mean, yeah, specifically with the player development, like, yeah, Chris didn't, he didn't even start the, the season looking like the guy that we saw last night. This was like, a, a within the last th- two or three games has become this kind of like, I'll take what the defense gives me. I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, efficient and, and, and drive and dish. Like the uh, fact that Hopkins is able to enact these changes like mid season is crazy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's something that we haven't seen like we said before, the past couple of years, I mean, it's just been running at the same offense, the same, same defense. The players look the exact same, just game after game after game, no matter whether it was working or not. Yeah. Uh, do you, speaking of player development and players not looking the same, are, are you claiming Sam Tim? Have you adopted Sam Timmons officially? Is, are the papers going through? Um, 
You know, I don't know if you remember at the end of um, at the end of Kendrick Perkins' career when he ran, it kind of seemed like he was wearing really heavy combat boots. Yeah, I like almost he had come out of of Nam with mud on his boots and he was he was running away, and that's that's how he looked like he ran, and that's how Timmons runs. It's really interesting to watch him just run up and down the court. He puffs out his chest. The, the Jesus Montero running school. Yeah, it's it's pretty great, and I think. I mean, jokes aside, that's it helps a lot to play the zone when you got a guy that has your center has combo combat boots on because he doesn't have to switch out on, on pick and rolls. He doesn't have to hedge. He just kind of plops himself in the middle of the lane. So that's the perfect defense for him. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like just for him, I mean, the physical tools are always there. You come into to college as a mammoth, um, you know, six eleven guy who can outbody people. He's gotten a little bit stronger, a little bit bigger for sure, but. It, for him, it feels all confidence. Like, it's it's always been as easy as it is for him to dunk. It's just the the idea of it seems much easier than it than it ever has been for him. Uh huh. Definitely. I mean, and part of that just comes with confidence of playing for a couple of years. But but the system that they're running now is uh, a lot better for him. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 better for everybody. I mean, like Noah Diggerson last night. Just it, it's perfect. You, you clear everyone out. There's space. There's no one. There's no one battling him or battling. Like they don't play Dickerson and Timmons very much yeah. together. Um, it's it. They, they've been able to to look in the cabinet and say, okay, we don't have a lot here, uh, but we can make something work. And it's it's just awesome to see. Uh, and it, it also keeps him out of foul trouble. The zone keeps uh, Dickerson out of foul trouble, which has been his his biggest issue. Obviously, I guess going back to the zone and going back to your original point of what kind of stood out to me and something that I really wanted to see this year. And cause you got a guy from Syracuse and obviously Syracuse is famous for the zone and watching him play it last night was really interesting. There was one thing that Romar told me he play Romar coached a, I think it was like a summer. It might've been like an 18 and under or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, USA team with Beheim, and he said with Beheim, when Beheim was telling him about the zone, he the one thing he described or that really stood out to Romar was that a lot of people, especially college players, when they get the ball right there at the high post in the middle of the zone, a lot of, I mean, that's just not a very, a very high percentage shot that a lot of guys can make. And a lot of teams put their four there, which isn't a good playmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas actually put Vic there. I couldn't tell if it was Michael or Marcus from the small TV, but Correct. he was actually a better playmaker than most. But, I mean, since you're, since you're a little kid, you're told in basketball to keep the ball out of the middle. I mean, that's, you're told that since you were yep. boys and girls, you have wristbands on, and that's who you can guard. You, when you're breaking the press, when you, if you get the ball to the middle, you've broken it. They always want to keep it out of the middle. When you're when you're playing man defense, you don't want to let the ball drive to the middle. It opens up help. You don't have good help side when it gets to the middle. Everybody else is open. Both corners are open. They can drop it off to the big. So you're always trying to funnel it to the baseline. And in a zone, you're always told to keep it out of the high post. From there, they can they can pass to whoever, and they can drop it off to the big. But Bayheim's a little different, and it's a pretty unique way of playing. It's why he's been so successful. Is that just a lot of college guys aren't able to be um, successful when they get it at the at the high post? It's a really awkward position. You don't really know whether you shoot a jumper or you shoot a right. push floater. Do you throw it up to the big? 
And it really worked for Bayheim when he has, because he's always had a seven-footer playing the middle of the zone that's long. He can contest the, the guy's shot from the free throw line, but he can also get back and stop the alley-oop to the big. Now, we don't exactly have that in big old <laughs> Timmy right now. but There's some fat mellow co- comparisons there. Yeah, exactly. I saw Peeps recruiting. That's that's what he's going to I mean. Some of his recruits coming in extra already, that type of build. Right. And it's, it's becoming even more, actually, I think, uh, advantageous to that that type of defense is becoming more advantageous as the game becomes more threes and dunks. I mean, as analytics have become a bigger part of the NBA, and the NBA is what everyone gets, what trickles down to the lower levels. Right. People shoot threes and they get dunks because that's the statistical, I mean, that's the best way to play. Yeah. So I don't want any more, no little kid practices how to shoot a floater from the free throw line. It's just not what anyone does anymore. You either shoot a three or you break a guy down off the dribble like Kyrie and you get to the rim. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so. that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I, it came down to a certain point in that game where, I mean, the first five or six trips down the floor, it was the same play, same design for Kansas. And mm-hmm. Vic gets the ball, yeah. and then you have Azubuke at the rim, and, and it's either, you know, Tim, yeah. Timmons leaves Azubuke or – he doesn't, and then Vic shoots a, a floater, and it seems like yeah. they, they got to a point where it's like, we'll play the numbers with Vic shooting this floater. floater. He's either going to, like, if, if he can shoot it at 50% and they're only getting twos, that's mm-hmm. better for us than getting Graham involved, getting these other guys involved. Um, and they lived with it, and it, it, it paid off. I mean, the, that yeah. amount of strategy going into to how you play someone uh, was just incredibly refreshing, and seeing a coach take a gamble like that and seeing it pay off is just like mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a thing in college basketball. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't really know what was what was going on, you'd be like, what the kind of what kind of defense are they playing? Just letting a guy catch the middle and shoot a floater every time. But it's a point to not. You notice when he caught it at the high post, the normal zone or you know what you'd watch high school teams do or something like that. As everybody freaks out and crashes into the middle, and then he yep. kicks out for a three. But the the wings and the guys playing up top were just staying out on Makai Luke and Graham. And he was, you know, it was just this awkward position where he didn't really know what to do. And he ended up, I think he was 13 for like 23 or something like that. And their game plan is not normally to have to have Vic shoot 23 shots. So it just yep. takes the team out of their game plan and makes it awkward. It's just not something you play against. And yeah. for a team that's nearly as talented as the other team that they're playing, you got to make the game awkward you got to make the game weird and that's what the zone does yeah you could see Vic and I mean Vic, Vic Kansas had just played Syracuse and had a very similar game where where they're seeing the same thing and Vic kind of figured it out middle of the game like oh I can just throw the lob to Azubuke um, uh-huh. and, and it seems like he was ready to do that the first couple of possessions and then it was like oh I, I have to shoot this shot I'm going to shoot this shot over and over it's a really easy shot and all that stuff's running through your head and then then you, you know he ends up turning the ball over four times and I think UW just realized, hey, it's much better if LeGerald Vick is making decisions than, than if Devontae Graham is. Yeah, especially if you're not the star player on your team. I mean, he's probably their third or fourth leading scorer, something like that. It's not You're not used to it, and it feels kind of weird to take every single shot down the floor. Yeah. So if you keep getting the ball in the middle, you want to shoot every single shot. It's not the way that Bill Self and Kansas have, have made their living. So he's not. He's, it's just it's this awkward position to get in, and that's kind of the point of that's why Bayheim thinks it's so advantageous to have a guy just have to make all the plays out of the middle yeah yeah definitely especially i mean like you said the the three and you know the three and dunk strategy in the nba you know that that works when you have these high level playmakers at every position but um uh-huh. college ball you got you got some guys um with the spotlight on them and they're not ready for that so yeah i mean vic ending up with 28 
uh, seven assists. It's not even a bad thing just because of, of, of how the game plan was designed to basically say, hey, if it goes up for 40, then that's okay as long as nobody else gets hot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, it was strategically and just seeing kind of these, these little things that Hopkins will do. He'll, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more about Hopkins later, but uh, like little blitz plays and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so much different than what we've seen before with, with just kind of the same road strategy and hope we can, hope we can kind of, you know, hit more shots than the other team. And it's just, you know, at a certain point you gotta be better than that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to see a adjustment based on, on what team you're playing. <laughs> yeah. What an incredible <laughs> concept. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it was, it was a shocking win, but also not that shocking because it, it wasn't like, you know, just some guy for us went off for 50 and that's, that's how we won. I mean, it was, it was a very, uh, very like, almost like you won a game of chess. Like there was, there was, there was a plan in place, uh, and it paid off. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so obviously a huge win going into hostile territory, not a place that Kansas has done super well in, but obviously Missouri is a little bit closer to uh, to Lawrence, Kansas than it is to Seattle, Washington. So um, and was... n- number two team in the nation, uh, just an absolute shock for, for any of us watching last night. For you, where does this win rank among the most important, influential, just out of nowhere, uh, just stunning. I don't, I don't even want to give it more adjectives, but just big wins in, in program history, really, since yeah. since that Romar era started in the early 2000s. Well, I guess I'd separate out stunning, um, upset with importance, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, I, this has got to maybe. I mean, it's got to be number one on just a stunning value. I mean, 22-point underdogs. Yeah, I mean, they could they could go back and see what I mean. What's the biggest brand new coach that the Huskies have ever that ever overcame? That's got to be up there. No, no one tweeted I that stat out for you this morning. No, I don't think so. Damn it! But I think when you come in, but in terms of importance, I mean, I think a lot of the the Romar wins when you get down to like this. Obviously, when you get to the NCAA tournament, and obviously Isaiah's shot. Um, against Arizona or the Stanford game, I think those are those are bigger because they're of where they're taking you. Right. Uh, but we could also look back at this game in five years and say it's number one because it, of what it of what it started. Right. Uh, it could it be a flash in the pan as well? So I think it's a jury's a little bit out on the importance of it. But when you just in terms of just absolutely just things that not anybody was expecting. Um, it's got to be number one. If you had to bet right now that this is this is that that number one in five years, we're looking back in 2022 from our our space station in, in uh, you know, the, the next galaxy over. Yeah. Is, is this that program-changing win, or is this just the craziest thing that ever happened and it, it never really got better from there? You know, I wouldn't say it was a program-changing win. I don't think it's just early seasons like this at college basketball with 30-plus games. And I mean, things happen early in the season. I think WCU started 6-0 or something like that, and then mm-hmm. they're terrible. Yeah. Uh, the eye test tells you they're terrible. But I think, I mean, 
really when I was watching the game and I think as any what any Husky fan should be doing this year is not you just really worrying about the wins and losses honestly I mean, I mean that may sound boys and girls clubby but just the eye test is what really matters and even before this game you could tell the team just plays with with way more cohesion and yeah. uh and effectiveness and hustle and speed and not speed of play as in as in how fast up and down they how many shots they get up per game but on mm-hmm. their defensive rotations in the zone, the way they set screens. I mean, everything is just quicker and done with more of a sense of purpose. Yep. And there was another uh, big thing I saw yesterday. That's I mean, this is a small thing only basketball guys notice, but someone, I think Chris, hits the three on the kind of the loose ball. Mm-hmm. It was like four minutes, five minutes left or something like that. Yeah, and the whole and the whole bench. I mean, they call timeout, and the whole bench explodes and meets them at half. And that's how the first guy out there was was. Carlos Johnson, a guy that should be, that probably is pissed he's not getting minutes, and he's the first guy out meeting someone after he hits a big shot. Yeah. And that, that just speaks to the um, chemistry that a team has, and it has, it's something that if you've been watching the body language of teams in the past two, three years, it's been guys out for themselves, guys trying to trying to get their own, yeah. and that's a pretty nice thing to see. Yeah, a little body language, Dr. Uh, Bill Simmons, we're proud of you there. Um, the, uh, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they sit Conroy at the end of the bench, and I think that's that's on purpose because you kind of have like uh, this this. Yeah, it kind of sits in the middle of this middle of like the reserves, kind of. Right, exactly, and so you have this coach who you know anyone who who watched Will Conroy play or knows about him as a person is just like this this fireball of energy and 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 enthusiasm and to have that guy uh-huh. sitting next to you, you might have all those thoughts in your head, but you got this crazy coach of yours telling you about how like how important this is and and spitting that stuff in your ear that you don't see that on every bench where you have kind of this younger influence who isn't that far out of playing himself i think that has to do a lot with what you're talking about where you have this kind of buy-in from a harold baruti at the end of the bench he's stoked at the end of the game even though he hasn't played a minute this year uh i mean that that that's just a very small touch of where you sit will conroy i mean that matters mm-hmm and I mean, that's the the way the bench reacts. I mean, that's the thing that small thing that a lot of fans don't realize. But I mean, when we would play and they would we would watch film. We do I don't even do this in high school too. But I mean, coaches will stop the film, and if people aren't getting up after a three pointer, I mean, the coaches are pissed because they know how much that means. When a team's really all bought in, when there's chemistry like that, and no one's for themselves, everyone's just all about the team winning. It it's just makes it's night and day between great teams. Are always like they watch great teams in the NBA. The good yep. teams, everyone's getting up on the bench when you watch the Nets. I mean, no one cares. Everyone's just trying to get their own buckets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, coaching a little bit last year it was part of the job of just like you got to remind these kids like stand up and clap for them. Like, like you know, you you are a freshman, so you're not you're not going anywhere. But like you know, you're on this team and you gotta you gotta create those things. But uh, I mean, it's getting, exactly. It's yeah, I mean it's 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 just about you know getting all that other stuff and then and like the speed that you're talking about, you talk about kind of the you know not like rushing shots and there's just opportunities where guys are coming up the floor and like you know you're like uh, the David Crisp I know was was gonna jack a shot. Um, yeah, but yeah on Crisp, on Crisp there's another I was meant to mention this when I first talked about Crisp. There's a play with there was like two fifty less or something like that. We're up by ten, eleven, and he. 
he gets the ball and he's getting pressured and he gets by his guy and there's it's probably a four on three um, late transition break and David Chris last year would have gone up and tried to dunk or done something stupid he would have thrown it up to Timmons tried to do an alley oop it would have landed five feet in the mm-hmm. stands but he pulled the ball back out and ran thirty seconds off the shot clock and got a shot up and that's that that maturation of him as a point guard for this team and for the program going forward is just is huge. Yeah, and exactly, ex- it's not like they're they're now you know the the Tony Bennett Virginia Cavaliers of just pound the rock type of team. You know, you see uh, like, you see like one little advantage in transition, and Thibault's got past his guy, and he shoots up a pass at the sideline, and the well springs up the sideline. I mean, the, the the ability to play fast and slow, like there's there's stuff here um, that that makes you feel like they can play against anybody, and, and especially you know, given the amount of scouting that I think they did for Kansas. Um, that bodes well for you know the second time around after playing a team in the conference. Um, yeah. So it's it's exciting, man. I mean, as far as as like that that big win, you know the the like program shifting type win. I liken it a little bit to uh, to in two thousand nine when the the Huskies had just come off of the season where um, it was the the Haas team, and now you have Isaiah Thomas on there and. You don't really know what's happening. Like the, the non-conference went okay, and then you go into Pullman to start conference play, and, and it should be like an even even match game. Wazir's probably favored in that game, and then you blow the doors off of them and win by twenty. Um, and then you kind of just see what you have there, and it's like okay, Quincy Pondexter's really good. You have a senior John Brockman, uh, Dentman, Isaiah Thomas. Like you kind of take inventory in those moments, but but you have to have the other stuff down. You have to have the you know the, the the team chemistry and the um, the ability to to win on the road. I mean, the, like this. I don't think this is a fluke. I think this this you know we talked about on the the, the group text last night. Is this going to be considered a bad loss for Kansas at the end of the season? I don't think it is. Yeah, I get what I thought. I I think even before the game last night was um, after watching them a couple of times, I liken this team kind of to the Chris Peterson second year. Mm-hmm. Or just when they went seven and six. Yep. And cause I don't, maybe I'm a little more pessimistic than you are about the team. I don't think they're particularly talented. I don't think they're particularly good. I think they're missing a lot of pieces. They have a, I mean, they're Matisse, shot the ball well last night, but they're missing a good wing shooter. They don't have have that much size besides Dickens. I don't think Timmons is a, is a Pac-12 top four team type center. But sure. what they have is really good coaching, and they play together, and they play smart, and they play well, and I think that they're able to pick. They're not going to win. They're probably going to be in, maybe in the middle of the pack. Pac-12 team to the lower end, but I think that they're going to pick off teams. Is that's what I talked about? I didn't think they're going to take out Kansas, but it's the same way. I think that that team with Peterson was not was missing a lot of pieces, but they were able to pick. I think they went to USC. We went to USC and won. Yep. With that team, and I think it's the same type of thing. I think we're going to we're going to really challenge people. I think we're going to be in a lot of games, but I mean, I think there's also going to be games where they might go to Arizona and get the, their doors blown off by 30 game versus Gonzaga could be could be terrible they're just gonna be up and down but the pieces are there the most important thing I think this is a even after this I still think this is a this is the year you're gonna build off of with a lot of people coming back next year and I think 
the most important thing besides wins and losses is the building blocks that are there of the way that they're the culture and the way that they're going to play. Yeah. And uh, what Hop is building, I think this is just obviously a fantastic start to it. Yeah, it's it's way ahead of schedule, and it's easy to um, to to go off the deep end as I might have done. Yeah, I don't think Kansas. I don't think Kansas played particularly well. No, either. Which kind of? I mean, Devontae Graham gets a technical, misses two free throws. How often does that happen? There's a lot of stuff that they just they didn't. I think Azubuki got in foul trouble early, but a lot of that also is from us just taking out of the taking us them out of their comfort zone i think the zone has a lot to do with that yeah I mean, graham is in a guy when he's he's one for eight from the field that's a that's when you go to the free throw line and miss two field goal two free throws because you're just mentally not there yeah and that's what zone kind of did totally and i mean you have the you have the like i said you have pieces it's not it's not the whole puzzle like i mean you know the i don't know how many more sam timmons hook shots i can take in my life don't go ahead <laughs> but the, the hook is uh it's it's as if Aziz is his... Is his as uh, many as you want. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, just the ability of, like, okay, Kansas cuts it to 2, 52-50, and then, you know, you get a Jalen Noel bucket to kind of stop it. And you have you have Noel, you have Dickerson, who are, and you have Thibault, who are, you know, like all-conference-level guys who can... Hit, you know, Thibault's less on the create-his-own shot as those other two guys are. But not a lot of teams can have that. And meanwhile, you look up and down the conference last night and you see, you know, Cal gets their, their behinds handed to them by Central Arkansas at home. Wazoo loses to, to, to Idaho by 30. I mean, like, all this just shitty. It's, it's bad. And so, I mean, there's, there's an opportunity to make some noise. And, and like you say, the pieces coming together, wins and losses. However, wins, especially for a team like this, um, just can, can, really galvanize and can make something that you know when when you when you work your butt off and you see uh you know like oh these things are coming together but you're still losing that's tough Mm -hmm. when it can translate into wins no matter who it is against i mean there's just there's something to that especially if you can return this whole team next year Um, yeah it's a buy-in i mean when you it's the same thing when when peterson if you start when you do what he says and you win then you buy in right if you do what he says keep losing you're like uh i don't know if this is working yeah especially i mean especially with a new you know for what most guys have played with radical system of playing i mean most high school kids have played a zone at some point in their lives nothing nothing with the level of detail than what with what hopkins is offer asking them to do so uh exactly it's, it's uh it's a big thing it's a big Big thing to see this much success early, even though, you know, is beating UC Davis by seven success, you know, so, so there's, there's different levels, you know, you can, you can surprise a team, but now you got to, you know, really take care of business with, with the teams that you should beat. Um, and then we'll see what happens with Gonzaga. Um, before we get, we got a fun little segment for the end of it. I'm really excited about that, but any other like X's and O's just kind of things that, that Hopkins has done, um, because you, you just it feels different watching this team versus the versus the last you know five or six years of, of Husky basketball. We've talked about a lot of it. Any other little X's and O's spots that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, offensively is they're pretty interesting. I haven't, I don't know if they don't really have an identity yet on offense, which makes sense. It's just early in the season, and they're a whole. I mean, a lot of them haven't haven't played together with Noel and some of those guys, and they have a new coach, but. I mean, it seems like they have more of a, of a um, 
they have more of a thought to get it inside mm-hmm. to Dickerson. I mean, that's something that's just that I think Romar would tell the guys. But when they start getting in um, that dribble drive offense, it's just hard for a big man to get the ball a lot. I mean, they would have to call. When we had big guys that would score, we'd have to call plays to get the ball because just that offense doesn't isn't made for for big guys to get. Even even when we had Brockman, we'd have to run plays to get him the ball. Right. But it seems like in just in the flow of the offense, if Dickerson's posted up, someone just someone throws the ball into him. Yeah. And, which is, I think is not really revolutionary when it comes to to basketball, but for UW the past mm-hmm. eight years, it is kind of revolutionary. Yeah, and and it's it's not so much like these plays, right? It's just kind of like get him a touch. He's so he's so good, and he's gonna beat you one on one. That he draws the double, and then so it's it's kind of up to Dickerson from there of like when you can surround him with shooters and cutters, it helps everything he does. But it's also you know it, like there's there's stuff around him that makes it work, and there's just it, it's it's this cohesive unit kind of like you said built around him. Um, and there was a play, I was trying to track it down on YouTube as you were talking there, where I think Noel threw it to Dickerson from the, from the left side, and then Dick, and then so Noel went to the corner, and then from the corner, Thibel goes all the way to the top of the arc, and they, they lose Thibel, and then Thibel's wide open at the top of the, the, the three-point arc for a three. Like, that, that level of movement, it's not really a play, it's just, it's just a... It's just something that you have when you get a good look. Like, it, it's it's not this overcomplicated system, but you know you, you're you're making use of the strengths that you have, and um, like just seeing that stuff happen and seeing it materialize, and you can see it happen before the result of the play. It's it's just it gives you confidence that that there's something that these kids have figured out and um, mm-hmm. it's productive. Yeah, that was a great play. It might be the same play you're talking about, I'm not sure, but there was, I think, the second half, and Dickerson drew a double, and he skipped it across the court. I think they replayed it. I think it was like a timeout had happened right after, mm-hmm. so they replayed it, and he skipped it across the court to Matisse for a three, big three. It was eight, ten minutes left or something like that. And as you get, yeah, you, you feed a big, especially he gets them into foul trouble, so they're playing these, they got white walk-ons guarding him, which is always a good sign. Yeah. Uh... He, they have to cross a double team and skips it to Matisse and for a three and it's it's that's the type of stuff that happens when you when you keep feeding the post you get your guys in foul trouble you draw doubles um it opens up driving lanes it's it's the inside out type offense yeah it's it's uh it's solid uh, the the Mitch Lightfoot name I mean that's he, he that's, be- that's a good he belongs in Naismith immediately for for just the name he got dunk, he got dunked on by Timmons he might be heavy foot after that <laughs> He, he looked pretty light foot. He got up and did a, like a little reverse one hand yes. under the basket. Yeah, he slapped the backboard too. It was sweet. Yeah, and then never played after that. Um, but yeah, so it was it was it was just kind of I don't know this like really big breath of fresh air. And I don't know if it was uh, fool's gold or if it was um, the sign of things to come. But I guess we will we will get that information shortly. Uh, playing. Did you see, uh, see Bill Self's interview after on SportsCenter at all? Well, he was just like we suck. Yeah, he's so he's funny because you know he always just rips into his teams whenever they lose yeah. <laughs> about how about how much they suck even though they always turn out to make the final four. Yeah, but he's it was funny seeing the dogs on the side of making him say that. I liked it. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, I don't know if you saw John Anderson like throw up on himself as he was trying to to interview <laughs> the Copians after the game. 
Yeah, he also had Crisp come in the interview. But not saying like, But they never asked him a question. He just awkwardly sat next to Hopkins the whole time he talked. Yeah, he, well, he didn't have a mic, which would have been a problem. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it was, I, I don't think David Crisp wanted to be sitting next to a, a coach as he was, like, trying, yeah. to, trying to get hype with his, with his boys there. But, uh, yeah, um, I, don't, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the line on, on David Crisp being on, the, uh, on Primetime Sports Center was at the start of the year. More than more than twenty two, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was. I mean, it just we'll we'll see. I mean, that that Gonzaga game on Sunday. Um, I wish I was in Seattle to to be a part of that. You going? I don't. I, I'm gonna try. Unfortunately, they were all. They've already been sold out. The tickets for weeks. Because the Zags are gonna get. You know, like even if we were zero and eleven, the game would be sold out because of all the Zags. Right. All so the, the Zags. I'll bought all the tickets even before we we won this game. Now it's going to be all you know people trying to go. I don't, but I don't know if there's any given me any tickets left. Yeah, the uh, the people who love Spokane so much that they live in Seattle after they graduate. Um, yeah, the, they it'll be, be the, this will be the first. I haven't been to a Zags dogs game, and I think since probably Adam Morrison had forty or whatever, and we beat him. Yeah, when uh, when Roy and and Amos combined for eighty and we beat them, um, yeah. that was. A seminal mo- moment in a lot of people's childhoods. I know. I think you and yeah. I can probably speak for that. Um, <laughs> that was uh, that was huge in, in the days of a, of a distant era um, of Husky basketball. But hopefully, we're getting back there soon. Um, good yeah. talking about actual basketball and and all that stuff. I want to get far, far away from that. I mean, it's, it's kind of related to basketball. But you played <laughs> on a team with one of the biggest uh, enigma. I don't know circus shows in in kind of quietly like i don't think you could say robert upshaw in a national scene and people would really know anything about him however you certainly do you played on he he was redshirting right he had he had to sit out a year while you were playing with him yeah he was my second my last year there he was redshirting yeah yeah he had just transferred from his 15th program in in two years from fresno state yeah, um, I think he Yeah, he, he was a guy that would torment us his senior year with with uh, just freakish athleticism and ability, and then uh, you know, unspoken things happen, and he was dismissed from the team, and then our, our season yeah. was dismissed from existence. Yeah, he probably should have been dismissed a long time before he was. <laughs> yeah, that was that was when Romar started to 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 get a little riverboat gamblery and fig- and just see, yeah. throw shit against the wall and see see what could do what he could do with it. <laughs> Um, good, good times with Robert Upshot. Are there any, um, stories that you could enlighten our, our fans with, um, about Big Rob, you know, from, from his practice days? Cause he wasn't, he wasn't allowed to play back then. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stories. Most, most not, not safe for, for pod. Yeah. Or, or that I want someone from Fresno to hear. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. We have, do, was, we do a strong I mean, a great- audience. A great thing he would always do was that, I mean, he would always get us in, tr- in trouble for stuff. Obviously, I mean, he would never be on time for anything or or run a play right or anything. Yeah. So he'd usually cause us to have to run some amount during practice. And we'd always, you know, and coach would yell, get on the line. And Rob just, well, he just wouldn't get on the line. He just decided that he wasn't, he did, doesn't want, like, running. So everyone else gets on the line because of him. And he would just, he'd just walk into the locker room and practice would be over. <laughs> That's uh, that's exactly what you want as your program is is trying. I to respect the balls off, but he also was just like the biggest character, um, like 
life size. I mean, just like how tall he was is how big this like character he was. Whenever like reporters or TV cameras would come around, or anything like that, he would just be like the life of the sh- you know just the nicest guy in the world. He was not the nicest guy in the world. The sh- just he would have like little kids out and like lift him up and have him dunk and stuff. And he, and he, everything he said was just a huge lie, which was really <laughs> funny. We went. We went. We would go bowling before every season because uh, Romar was a, uh, was a big bowler. It'd be kind of our like post training camp uh, kind of team bonding thing. Mm-hmm. And and Rob said he bowled a three hundred. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh yeah, I bowled it because they were asking everyone their scores before to try to make fair teams. And he's like, oh yeah, I love bowling. Bowled a three hundred. I was like, what? No fucking way. So we get he we get there. We bowl. We get done. They're reading out the scores. He bowls a thirty seven. A gentleman's 37. <laughs> Everyone was just like, what, what is, how do you think you're going to get away with bowl, saying you bowl a 300 right, right before we bowl? Right. I mean. But then you bowl a 37. It's like you saying that you, you shoot at 65 in golf and then we get out there and you shoot your whatever you shoot, 150. Yeah, I've shot 65 on a, on a hole at Ken Wanda once. So that's, and then two comes out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's incredible. I mean, he's really like, he could have played that right. Like he could have, he could have jokingly said he's the 300 and then fooled everybody and, and done it with a certain tack. But the fact that he was trying to dupe everyone that he was talking to shows you. Everything there was some, there was some other things. I just don't even remember that yet. Is everything that came out of his mouth is about 10 times exaggerated. Yeah. Well, but, uh, this, this, this was, uh, this was a lot of fun and hopefully. Well, so what's your, what, what's your, what's your thoughts on the end of the football, the dogs football season? Good, good little little yeah. thing here. I, I think that the Fiesta Bowl. We we we've talked before about how this this UW team had some serious serious flaws, and yeah, exactly. ten, ten and two is about right for how it ended up. Um, I th- still think they could have beat USC in, in this other universe, and like we're a couple plays Definitely. away from beating Stanford and yeah. USU for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, the 10 and two is kind of exactly what they needed. And so the opportunity to kind of, you know, play or like, uh, kind of just measure yourself against a team like Penn state who has tons of talent, tons of guys who will be in the NFL, um, is huge. And it's kind of a better opportunity than we had against Alabama, because if you, if you lose to Alabama, it's like, well, you're supposed to, but if you lose to Penn state, it's like, well, I don't know if you were supposed to, like, I, I think this is a, a legitimately good kind of benchmarker for where the UW program is. Yeah, I think I mean after the Stanford game, I think we were in a group text, and you know I also was trying to think positively and not jump out the window. But I mean, this team was not going to win the national championship with the amount of injuries that they had, mm-hmm. um, with with some of the deficiencies in the passing offense. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. So, I mean, this was the best case scenario. Honestly, the only thing else thing we could have got was to get the Pac-12 championship, but since there was no Rose Bowl, I mean, you, you don't get that plus either. This is probably where, where we would have ended up anyways. Right. You right. know, we, they're going we did and lose in the semifinals or we lose, you know, two games and end up in the Fiesta Bowl. Those are kind of the, the options. So, I, I mean, this is, I think it turned out fantastically. We, I mean, none of us were thinking were, I mean, I think if Stanford beats USC, we, we might end up in the Holiday Bowl. Yeah, it, it, it could have yeah. took a, took a I mean, drastic turn out, there. Right, and and I mean, I, I think you and I were texting after the Rutgers game of just like, 
that's not going to be good enough to be to be <laughs> um yeah so so there i mean there was just some stuff that that needed to be worked out and um and that like regardless of it if this team stays healthy and, and kind of hit its stride late in the season found the running game like found the the kind of sweet spot of of you know run pass mix at the end of the season that was all great however you know between that and the health of the team and the competition this year it just it, it didn't it didn't come together and I don't think it was ever going to so um, yeah, I thought it was, it was have you have you watched Penn State play at all I I kind of have have shunned them just because of like the just incessant it's Saquon Barkley being stuffed down our faces. Um, I, <laughs> they uh they they have the pieces though like I mean they're they're gonna be they're 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 a solid team everywhere which is which is kind of exactly how I would describe you Dub. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think our defense is a little bit stouter than theirs. Uh, there's they're they're not like you know the 2000. 11 Baylor team just giving up touchdowns however um you know they they're they're solid everywhere I I I'm just like I said it's it's a great opportunity to see how we measure up against an objectively top 10 team in the nation yeah I I watched them play the Iowa game or they pulled it out at the end and I, I watched the Ohio State game and yeah it's going to be a huge test for our defense obviously with with McSorley and and Barkley, but I think that the thing that scares me is that they have some big white um, pass catchers. They have the they have like the six four some wide receiver that's really good, and then they have uh, this tight end, this like six six white guy that can jump out of the gym, mm-hmm. and that's what killed us against Stanford. Is like he's just jump balls to these big wide receivers. Right, and and when, whenever you have this much time to watch tape, I mean they they have almost a month to prepare us. Is uh, you can see that that Stanford game and our Sega Whiteside and just and kind of how Stanford got us and how Arizona State got us of just play keep away and have a have a solid running game which they absolutely can and, and then just get it to possession receivers to move the chains when you have to um, and and I think I think McSorley is is the best quarterback outside of Rosen that we've played this year. Yeah, I, I think so too. Yeah, so I mean it's it's. it's it should be interesting, and um, you know, you like uh, you like Chris Peterson's odds back in 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 Phoenix, where he made his made his name. You think? Do so you think best week in? I mean, the history of Seattle sports this week. Uh, there's a there's a certain the arena. The, the arena Sounders. The Huskies beat KU. The Seahawks win. The if the, the Mariners are in the running for Otani. If if uh, if Mr. Otani signs, then then yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a oh, yeah. space needle. I think I remember one. We might have been in college, I think, but I remember one. I think it might have been on the same day we got like Cano and Chris Peterson. Yes, like yeah. that. It's uh, you can go back and to my Instagram was, feed and find the exact. I remember day. there being, I remember there being like three things in like the space of two days. Remember, but this is this has been a pretty good week. I, uh, uh, there was a certain week in February, um, our, our junior year that was pretty good too, if you remember. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I remember I was walking past Drumheller Fountain and it was completely frozen over and it was the same day that we got Robinson Cano and it felt like hell had frozen over because it was <laughs> in- incredibly random that, that, uh, Seattle, like the, the swaggiest guy in baseball, client of Jay-Z decides to come to Seattle, Washington. Yeah. Uh, Mariners marketing department, baby. Yeah, all those bobbleheads, yeah. Sold them on it. That's all. 
Otani's coming. I bet they're showing him what that prototype bobblehead's going to look like. Babblehead, it's going to look like. Yeah, have you, have you ever seen a yellow hydro show high? <laughs> no. He gets to he gets to ride the Alberto Hydro. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, it's it, we're in a, we're in a good spot. Um, I'm I'm very very optimistic about the, this Husky basketball team, Husky football. Uh, win or lose, I think against Penn State, you you know what you have as a, as a you know top top ten or fifteen program in the nation, um, arguably better than that. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, it, it's it's good times, and uh, you know this kind of like you know, punchy like nobody believes in us Hawks team is is. Kind of more fun yeah. than the than the just we beat everyone's ass teams. Are you are you a bigger Celtics fan now or Seahawks? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> man, uh, I what's the I'm buzz? St- I'm still a Hawks like, fan, like like through it through and through. That I mean, part of being a Hawks fan too is is it's my like biggest identity that people get pissed about out here that I can yeah. kind of rile people up about. Yeah, like, yeah I'm a Seahawks yeah, fan. Um, whereas like being a Celtics fan, is just kind of like you blend in around here. So I, yeah. I like my Seahawks identity as kind of this, like, you know, instigating douchebag from Seattle type person. What, what's the buzz with the Celtics around the, around the city? Everyone's what, what's weird in, in Boston is moving out, coming from like a NBA deprived zone as you feel, you feel as if, um, like as soon as you get there, like, you know, the Celtics are the best team in town or like at least the second best and like a 48 win Red Sox team would still dominate the the city's conversation more than really anything else and even even like a a like a plus 500 Bruins team uh can like is basically competing with the Celtics um the Celtics are more really? like nationally intriguing than either of those teams but locally it's it's crazy i mean they're 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 definitely the uh the kind of middle child within everything. Yeah. God, they've been good though. They've been really good. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I had a chance to watch them mid mid streak against the Raptors and, and they, they just dominate really bad teams. Cause Brad Stevens is yeah. just so much smarter than everyone else and just can beat like they, they have a design that can beat, any other good team like they 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 can configure in a certain way and like they they have actualized al horford to this point and like jason tatum is not going to be 20 years old till march and they've made him like he's so young fringe all-star already the problem is i mean as a celtics fan you have to i mean does it matter there's a there's an alpha human on the in the eastern conference that Makes it awful hard to get to the NBA Finals, yes. no matter what seat you get. Which is why all of the development within this year, and you can basically retain this entire team next year and the year after, yeah. is so important because then you have this ability to simultaneously build something that fans are super behind and like a couple bad breaks, you can beat a team like like Cleveland, by, like Golden State, um, and then yeah. are also simultaneously positioning to. Uh, to to be this kind of like upending next yeah. next big team next big uh, dynasty in the in the league after both yeah teams. that's the thing I think is the key the key to what they've done is that they've they've built to try to win but without sacrificing the future you know they've built to win with these young guys as opposed to what like Toronto has done mm-hmm. and getting all these old beating LeBron with 
I mean, no one right now is being a bonus. You got a super team that won 72 games and then added Kevin Durant to it. Yeah. So there's no adding all these old guys to your team to try to get what to try to get to get second in the Eastern Conference. I mean, it's they're they're playing the long game while at the same time getting you know 50 cent wins for their fans. I think they're they're doing it pretty well. Yeah, I mean they they arguably, I mean uh, I I don't think Brown and Tatum are on the same level as Embiid and and Simmons and Fultz. However, like you are so much more ahead of what Philly has in basically rebuilt in quicker time at a, at a much higher ability level. So yeah, I mean they've they've been able to do the the Philly kind of tank out bottom out without mm-hmm. sacrificing any of their core development, which is just it's a masterstroke. It's 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 really impressive, and as you said, it can still be upended by uh, by number twenty three in Cleveland. Will we finally get to the point where the Eastern Conference is better than the Western Conference? You think? It's it's what, con- it's been since we were like started watching sports that the Western Conference has been better. I mean, it's crazy. It's been like twenty years. Yeah, the Eastern Conference to me is just always like the eight seed is has 35 wins and doesn't, yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems to me very similar. The eight seed in the Eastern conference has just always been, uh, 2013, 14, UW basketball, not wanting to get into the NIT. Like it's, it's the exact same type like of scenario. And shit. Right. Right. Like doing whatever you can, like the fear of the deer bucks getting in, like, uh, you know, just like awful, awful teams getting involved, but then you always have this kind of power at the top. And so, um, yeah, I think we're getting there. I think the NBA in general is just getting, getting higher parity, and eventually that'll that'll even out in terms of conferences. I mean, it never really made sense as to why the East was, um, was in the state that it was in the first place. So, uh, yeah. 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 Um, well, it's good. Seattle sports. Yeah, it's 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 very funny to to spend a lot of my time thinking about Seattle sports while I'm uh, twenty eight thousand or twenty eight hundred miles away. Um, but it's good to, uh, good to have a couple of different bases out here. And I'm, I'm your, I'm your correspondent out here in Boston. Yeah. I'm your correspondent on Seattle. There we go. Um, well, yeah. you got a, you got a company party to, to go bomb. Um, I hope yeah. that there's. Gotta go drink too much and make them regret hiring me. Yeah. That's, that's what everyone's job is. My boss said to me today, he's yep. like, it's, it's kind of funny because we moved the opposites and I, I sit next to him and he's like, it's kind of funny, uh, listening to you, what you guys say all the time. And I was like, that's. Too bad. <laughs> I thought I was doing a good job, but uh, uh, so it's okay. Um, Ring endorsement. Yeah, right. Um, so thanks for coming on. We'll uh, we'll definitely have to talk after the Gonzaga game, and and um, hopefully hopefully this this flash in the pan in, in Missouri was uh, was not bad. It was some part of something real nice for the future. Yep. Anytime. All right, Go boss. On. Enjoy the eggnog. Always a pleasure talking to Quincy about a team he used to play for. Next up is Mike Roberts talking about the Sounders and the future of USA soccer. I'm a self-proclaimed soccer idiot and own it, so I really just let Mike go to work on this one. Next up is Michael Roberts, a.k.a. my oldest friend, a.k.a. the babyface assassin, a.k.a. the Capitol Hill kicker. Uh, former Seattle U soccer sensation Michael Roberts is joining us live from the Chieftain in, in Capitol Hill, no? I wish I was at the Chieftain. Uh, it sounds pretty fun. But uh, nope, just hanging out, watching a dog, here to talk about some soccer. Yeah, uh, I know nothing about soccer, as you have, have come to learn about me throughout our 
damn, what is it? Like 15 years of friendship. So, um, something like that. I hold my own though, right? Like I can, I can at least pretend like I know a little bit. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I, I can I can do four minutes of conversation, but here I'm gonna try and do like thirty. So this this is where I get fully exposed. All right, that's yeah. perfect. <laughs> um, all right, so I know nothing about this current Seattle Sounders soccer season. Um, so your job is to give me a synopsis of of how the Sounders season has gone so far. I'm just gonna assume that Freddie Montero has just had a, a crazy year, right? Uh, Freddie Montero, pretty decent year, actually. Not with the Sounders anymore. Uh, he left America and then came back. Is actually playing now with Vancouver. See, so this kind is of the our... type of insight that you can't get anywhere else. Right, yeah. So he's kind of a rival now. I still like him. You know, he's a good player. But uh, it's unfortunate he's not with us and he's with another team that's pretty good, especially one of our rivals. But um, if, I, if I'm going to get into the Sounders season, we'll get away from him. But uh, they've had, you know, I don't know if, you followed the Sounders last year, but it's been a similar season to last year. Um, kind of the beginning of the year was very rough for the Sounders in 2016. They were losing, you know, probably 60% of the games and tying a lot of games as well. Um, and they kind of flipped it on for the back half of the season and, you know, just wrote it out as they went through the playoffs and, you know, won, won the MLS cup. But, but this year was kind of the same where um, they started out, um, you know, the first half of the season was about 500. I, I, they were, uh, six, seven and six. So six wins, seven losses and six draws, which is not a terrible record for, for soccer, but it's not a record that you want going into the playoffs. Um, but then kind of the second half of the season, they turned it all around. Um, I wrote it down here, 11, 11, two and six. So that's, um, you know, that's really good for soccer, mm -hmm. uh, especially with, you know, the Western Conference being, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's a harder conference, but it's always a little bit closer. It's more competitive. So when they were kind of able to finish out the season like that, it kind of it put them in a spot where they got a first round by, uh, which is pretty vital going into the playoff run. Yeah. So let me um, let me make a, a bold claim about the MLS and how it works. And, and you and I were talking about the importance of momentum in soccer over over just about any other sport because of, of the, the continuity of play and things like that. Because the level of talent in the MLS is lower and there's, a, there's, a, there's not as big of a distance separating the top 10% of the players in the league and the bottom 10%, that momentum means so much more in this league than it does in any others because there aren't these transcendent talents that can kind of neutralize momentum and keep teams good, even though that they might not be playing that well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think in a way with the European teams, you know, they have their momentum of their own, but it's also they've got those guys that are week in, week out, you know, making plays for their teams that, um, are, you know, putting, putting down the lower teams. So you look at teams like Manchester city in, in England right now, they've, they've gone undefeated 15 games in their league. You know, do you call that dominance or do you call that momentum? It's, it's hard to say really, but in, but in the MLS, you know, you've got, you know, you can take a team like the Sounders versus a team like Houston, like, like it was this last week for the, uh, Western conference championships. And, you know, Sounders just seem like, they were the better team and on paper, you know, the teams are 
fairly even. I would I would probably take the Sounders in that game on paper, but you're right. The momentum definitely helped, and I mean, it it should have been a little bit closer than it was. It turned out to be five zero on aggregate, and it could have been, you know, seven or eight after those two games. So I, I think the momentum is a pretty big thing in the MLS versus the European clubs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I'm about to watch my first Sounders game in almost a decade on Saturday. Nice. So <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to turning it on and having no idea about about any of the players or anything like that. Um, so I always think about like when I, you know, when you get to know a team, you can kind of you can make a bingo board for that team of like things that you could expect to happen in that game, kind of like the the drinking game type thing for a team. Okay. Um, yeah. What What are some things that I could expect to see when I watch the Sounders for the first time on Saturday? So firstly, I think you should make it a drinking game because that's going to make it way more fun for you. Yeah, um, that, that might be in the works. Yeah. Um, no. So. A, a couple of guys to look out for, um, and it's kind of, you know it's kind of funny that a lot of them are going to be the defensive players, but um, I think both teams, not just the Sounders, you, even looking at Toronto, you've got two teams with a really solid defense. Um, the Sounders signed this this guy from the Netherlands, Kelvin Leardom. He's been playing it right back, and he kind of has he's been a very solid guy for them. Um, he gets up and down the line pretty well, serves in good crosses. He's really good in possession. That might not be a guy that, you know, you being it, being a person, you know, the more typical American call me an idiot. Just, just say, okay. Um, the, the typical not soccer fan that's watching soccer. I'm not going to ask you to call me an idiot and you're being too nice about it. I have no idea. You're what I'm a talking about. Idiot. No. Um, uh, you know, that might not be the guy that you're watching, but, I think on both teams, you're going to, you're going to find that it's a very good defensive battle. And then I think, you know, for, for offensively, um, you've got, you know, Clint Dempsey, who's the perennial goal scorer, right? He's not always the most effective guy on the field at all times, but he's going to be the guy that sits in the box. And if you put the ball on his foot, he's going to score it. I think he's got like, you know, something like 12 goals, five assists this year. Like, you know, he's just a guy that puts up numbers, Mm -hmm. um, he's the guy that you want to get in the box and he's going to score you some goals. And then you've got Will Bruin. Uh, he's been playing forward this year. Jordan Morris has been out for most of the year and, and Will Bruin, you know, I, I never really thought of him too highly, but he's come in this year and played really well. He's a guy that's going to stretch the field long, make good runs in behind and, and be a pest to the, to the defense of Toronto. Uh, hopefully, you know, get a goal. Um, that would be awesome for him. And then obviously you've got guys like, Nico Ladero, who's got, you know, seven goals, 12 assists. Um, you know, he just runs train in the MLS because he's kind of played in a lot of different systems where the competition's a little bit higher and he's kind of ahead of the speed. You know, he's not a super fast guy, but he's able to find those balls that as long as players are making good runs, he's going to be able to pick them out and hopefully they'll be able to score goals off of that. And, you know, you got, Unfortunately, we don't have Ozzy Alonso. Uh, he's been out for a pretty decent amount of time now, but Christian Muldon has done a good job of, of filling in there. And, you know, he's one of the young guys in the league that's kind of excelling at that center defensive mid role and, you know, taking over games, not just on defense, but actually getting a little bit forward, scoring a couple goals, getting a couple assists. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think Christian Muldon, Clint Dempsey is going to have a part to play in the final and, Nico Ladero, Will Bruin, Kelvin Leardom, and Stephen Fry, if he gets called upon in goal, you know, let's hope he can make another spectacular save like he had last year in the final. I don't know if you saw that one, but it's 
pretty impressive. I'll have to use my imagination, as 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 I've described. <laughs> I watch soccer every four years, and uh, we'll get, we'll get into a little bit of the disappointment uh, regarding that <laughs> just a little bit. Um, I am interested though Saturday because I think um, I, it, it's appealing to me that you know this this Sounders team. I you know I, I have my finger on the pulse of Seattle, and I can kind of gauge the team. And I feel like both years they've kind of surprised um, everybody by by making it to to the final. So. Um, they've, they've caught my ear, so so here we are talking about them. What is Seattle actually going to need to do in order to win? Um, like like what, what's the prescription to pull this off? Other than you know hope that you get to a PK situation like you did last year. Uh, you know, coming into this game, uh, you know I did a little bit of research earlier, Uh-oh. and um, I, you know I found that actually I was wrong with my initial instinct. Maybe uh, I, I had kind of thought. You know, throughout the year, Toronto has only lost five games, which is, I, I don't know if that's the best season in MLS history, but it's got to be up there. Um, they, they, I mean, they just have been absolutely dominant in terms of defense. They just don't get scored on. And then they've got um, Josie Altidore up top and Sebastian Giovinco up top, and they both have like 15 or 16 goals and a couple assists each. Like, you know, if you have stats like that, you're, you're just not going to lose a lot of games. So I think the biggest thing is, is, is the defense and, you know, for guys like you, you know, the idiots, if you know, whatever you want to call it. Yep. um, Yeah. It's that, that, that's not the fun stuff to watch is the, the tough, you know, hard defense, but those are, those are the, those are the things that win the games. Um, And, you know, as a guy that's played soccer and watched soccer for 20 years, you know, I actually you know, I'm one, well, I'm a forward as well, you know, so I don't play a lot of good defense, but I respect it. You know, it's, uh, it's the hardest thing to do. And so if you do defend properly and you defend well as a unit, you know, those, those are the things that win you games. Um, but I think if, if we go into kind of specifics of what we can do to stop Toronto, um, I think, you know, one big thing would be to not give them a free kick anywhere within 25 yards of, of goal. Cause Giovinco's in, four or five this year and he's you know he's a good free kick taker and you just don't want to give up those opportunities um i think we have a pretty fair matchup against josie altador he's kind of a big you know brute type player he's big physical strong he's pretty fast for size and he's just kind of a menace but we've also got you know chad marshall um roman torres is is coming back um i don't know if they're going to start him but if they even don't start him, we've got Spenson as well at center back who they're, they're all be pretty big guys that can hopefully handle Josie a little bit. But I think the biggest matchup is going to be in the middle of the park. You know, you're going to see uh, Roldan and Ladero for the Sounders uh, probably going up against Michael Bradley and uh, Vasquez for Hold on a second. Michael Bradley plays for Toronto. Yeah. I love Michael Bradley. Oh, come on, man. This is, this is going to be tough. Right, but that's what I'm saying. You know, Michael Bradley's a pretty solid American player, right? And he's he's he he does what he does, and he does it well. Um, and we'll I'll talk about him a little bit later with the you know the U.S. men's national team and stuff. But um, I think uh, Vasquez and and Bradley in the middle. I think Vasquez has got like six goals and 16 assists this year. You know, he's been kind of like the Ladero for their team. So if Christian can kind of shut him down, and if Ladero can take on. Bradley and kind of, you know, it's, it's going to be that matchup right in the middle that I think is going to be the, the toughest part. Um, and, you know, Toronto's also got good outside backs that'll be kind of streaking down the line and, 
crossing balls into Josie Altidore. So I think we're going to have to do a pretty good job of, of staying organized defensively in the box to make sure he doesn't get free. Um, but I think the biggest matchup is going to be those guys in the middle. Yeah, good stuff. I, I It's got to be, as someone who only watches soccer every four years, I'm a little astounded that Josie Altidore is capable of scoring goals. So um, hey. it's it's news to me that he, he has found out how to, how to do that art. Yeah, it took him. A, it took him a little while in terms of of league play, but yeah, he's he's doing pretty well now that he's found a spot in Toronto. Yeah, um, good for him. Uh, so, what what's your what's your prediction going into into Saturday? Games at one one p.m. Pacific. Um, you know, it'll be it'll be. I don't know what the the viewing party situation is in Seattle, but um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of bars going going nuts out there. Are we gonna get the the same kind of crazy finish this time or is it going to be a little more decisive you know it's it's really tough to say um so when i was looking at stuff earlier it's uh you know toronto's been the best team in the mls for the whole year consistently but i think seattle has had a better run in the last half of the season i was looking at it since since leardom has joined them because he he got signed halfway through the year they've they've played 19 games they've given up 11 goals and they've they've had i think it's 11 shutouts in that time and you know their defense uh, they they still they haven't been scored on in the playoffs yet so i think if they keep playing the way that they've been playing i think they get out of it 0-0 or you know you find maybe one goal in that game 1-0 but i I think that's and being a you know i'm from here i Love the Sounders. Always have since I was a kid. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pick them one zero. It's it's got to be them. I like it. I like it. it makes a lot of sense. I think uh, I think defense tends to uh, tends to break offense when it comes down to it. Um, give us the the soccer player's perspective on how disappointing it would be to. I mean, obviously it wins a win. However, why does it suck to end a game in penalty kicks? Right, so you're the guy that that hates ties. Um, yes. So that's the reason I'm, I'm they were back around on it. But I do think that ties are a little disappointing. Right, and I I understand that, but it's part of it. And so the reason that they they put the penalties in is so that you don't have to play your guts out and play for you know three hours if the game gets tied and you have no subs left. But I I think it's just it's an unfortunate way to end a game because if you think about it. You could put, you know, I could go out there and take a penalty kick and be probably just as good as another guy that's shooting that penalty kick in the game. Um, you know, you could put a 13-year-old out there, well, you know, a good 13-year-old, but it, it's not something that's dependent on how good a team is, and it's not something that matters, you know, how you played during the game even. You know, there, there are teams that have guys that are just kind of well-known for their penalty taking abilities that they'll just sub on for that last minute and say, okay, you go take a penalty, mm-hmm. you know, and what, you know, it has nothing to do with how the game was played. So it's just, it, in some ways it's, it's kind of like a cop out to just say, okay, well the game needs to end. And you know, this is, you know, it's fair. It's fair for both teams. They get the same opportunity at the penalty kick. Um, but it's just, it doesn't seem like the right way to end. If you know, a game has been so passionate and so energetic and you know, that, that, it's just kind of a right. It, it's like know, it, it's like if if a basketball game ended in a free throw competition. Yeah, pretty pretty much. You know, if you were tied at the end of the game, there's no overtime. You'd say, "All right, well, let's put Shaq on the line. We don't want to win this one or whatever." But it, it's just not it's not 
re- you know, it doesn't represent the game itself. Right. Yeah, that's uh, it's always been kind of an interesting thing to me is, is penalty kicks from from my perspective seem like this really, you know, like compelling, uh, you know, back and forth thing. But to to a soccer purist and to someone who is just laid it all out for 90 minutes it's 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 pretty hellish so um good perspective there we, we talked a lot about the the struggles of u.s soccer and kind of alluded to them and how you know the it will be uh well moving back a little bit u.s did not qualify for the 2018 world cup in russia which means we'll be all watching from home um <laughs> which is just i was planning on going out there anyway so yeah right i was i had it all booked out to moscow it's super fun place to go right now um, how did this happen? It, it seems to me that it is impossible. I mean, the U.S. is not a soccer power, but um, to, to be one of the nations that is on the outside, just it does not seem right. There's something wrong with it. So, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big answer here, but what led to, to this um, other than the current addition of the U.S. roster not being as talented as it, it could be? Yeah, well, there's, there's a couple factors in – I, I can't get into all of them because, you know, a lot of them get muddled in between whose responsibility is it between the players, the coaches and the organization of, of U.S. soccer. So it's hard it's hard to say where the, the blame entirely lies. But I think it lies kind of in between all three of them. Um, I, I think one of the one of the big things with uh, the players is, you know, we, we've had this system where we're a good team when we play, but it's just not, we're not a great team. And the coaching staff and the, you know, the U.S. soccer organization themselves haven't done a good job of uh, picking, you know, the maybe the best players. You know, you've got guys that are, you know, well-renowned players, but they're not, they're prop. They might not be the best American players. They're they're guys that have been in the league for a long time and they're experienced. But you're not going to have the like the youthful bite that that other teams around the world have. Um, I look I looked up the so the game we lost to Trinidad and Tobago, which was ultimately the the last game before we were eliminated from the World Cup. The average age of the U.S. players was 27 and a half, and you might not think that's super old, but what age do you know? What age do football players retire? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they, your average retired age of, I mean, it depends on the position of, of what type of, of impact. Not, not, a quarter, not a quarterback. Quarterback would be like goalie for soccer. But, you know, like, a, uh, you know, whatever it might be. But you see, you see the, I guess for soccer players, kind of the, the prime age is between 27 and 29. And if you look, if you look at the age, you know, that fits right in there at the prime age, but there were a lot of guys that were actually not playing in that game that generally do play. Like you look at Jermaine Jones, who's been kind of a, a keystone for the American soccer team. He's 36 now. Um, he didn't play in that game, but that would have raised the average quite a bit. Or, um, you know, you have Michael Bradley, who's in there, who's, you know, a good player by his own right. And, you know, I'll, I'll always enjoy watching the highlights of things that he's done for the American team. But I think you've got to start bringing in younger guys that are, you know, they have this youthful bite. And you, you can't expect to just keep bringing in old guys and then say, OK, well, now Michael Bradley's 36. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to bring in somebody else who's, you know, maybe look at like, um, you know, Pulisic now he's starting to play with them. But 
imagine if they were in the same mindset of saying, well, well, we'll just let Michael Bradley play for another six years and then we'll bring Pulisic in when he's 25. It's it's like, no, we should start bringing in these guys when they're you know, 17, 18, 19 and then get them playing with the team so that they can be really good by the time they hit 25, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it, there wasn't there wasn't really a strong plan for how they were going to overlap the, the old guard and the new guard. It was more burn the old guard out and then once it's out now it's going completely over to the new guard and and they have a couple couple younger guys like Pulisic is playing DeAndre I think is about 24 uh, Paul, Paul Ariola is 22 but most of the guys are sitting around you know 28 to 30 31 mm-hmm. uh, and those guys aren't guys that you're going to have for the next World Cup so I think now it's kind of the time to start um, time to start bringing in new guys that you know can make a difference right now and four years from now when we actually um, get the chance to kind of go play in another World Cup. And I, I think, um, you know, not just the players, but you've got um, the coaching staff. So Bruce Arena was the guy that they hired pretty recently. And this was actually one of the saddest things that I've seen. I've never once heard of a coach resigning from their position unless they were kind of like, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, like one of the all-time greats. Mm -hmm. Um, Bruce Arena quit. You never quit as a head coach. That means you don't care. You know, you you get fired because you're doing your job and you're not doing it good enough. You don't just ever quit, you know. Does that make sense? And from a PR perspective, if a a team respects you enough, they will say that you resigned or something like that. Um, But the, the, the quit moniker shows you a lot. I mean, that... That's that's the key word that you don't want to hear. Uh, yeah, I mean the the problem that, that Mike and I always talk about is kind of the you know the, the names that got brought up the the Christian Pulisic the um, you know the DeAndre Yeldon's of the world. Those are talented guys, and those are guys that that relative to the rest of these teammates that we're talking about the kind of old guard, the Bradleys, the Jermaine Jones, the Clint Dempsey's. Um, you know those those guys are are you know kind of the next wave. They're exciting. They're young. However, they're not. The, the needle movers they're not these these you know super talented international guys that um, that are moving the needle for, you know on, on an international scale they're they're nice young pieces and the U.S. is glad to have them however relative to the competition I mean you look at the European teams and and the the big time programs that are out there those teams have you know five or six Christian Pulisic's or you know much much more talented guys uh, that can hang about that so. Mike, we always talk about kind of where, where does a guy like Pulisic, who is this great wide hope for, for the, the next wave of U.S. soccer, where does he even rank, you know, internationally amongst players his age? I would say amongst players his age, I would probably put him in the top 50 to 100 maybe. Um, which which is a very... just not good enough when you want that guy to be the, the star of your of your show going forward. Right, but if you put him in the top, you know, 50 to 100 players of his age, obviously there are older guys that are better than him, but as he grows, he has the potential to kind of pass up some of those guys and maybe get into the top, I don't know, 25 or so. And then when he's at that 26, 27 age, then, you know, maybe he's in the top 25 players in the world. Mm -hmm. And that would be amazing for an American soccer player because we've never had, we've never had a guy like that, which... 
that would just be awesome. Yeah, and I think too for for the the, the marketing of U.S. soccer, as sad as it is, um, the average soccer fan can get behind the idea of like one transcendent player much easier than they can get behind like this you know oh like this this full team full of of, of decent players like the the kind of the the Mike Trout or the LeBron of of football or sorry of soccer would be would be huge for 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 pushing that team and getting people excited about u.s soccer again well for one you had it right that's technically football is the right the right word for it um yeah, I don't know about that. you actually use your feet Foot. yeah yeah pretty makes sense but <laughs> you know also you station lebron a lot they look pretty similar so i think he could really fill in for that role yeah, it's too bad about Pulisic's hairline. That's you, know, you don't want that stuff when you're when you're 18. Um, we'll just get. Yeah. So so are we going to be in the same boat in 2022? Is it uh, is it, are we going to be on the outside looking in, or will things get back to where they need to be? To be completely honest, I think we will make the World Cup in 2022. I I don't think our team will be a ton better by then. We've. I mean, we're blessed in the fact that we're in CONCACAF, which is the North American Federation for Soccer, uh, basically it sucks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which which is more of an, a testament to how bad the U.S. did in not qualifying for this World Cup. But we get three spots for North America and then a fourth for a playoff round. Um, and Mexico and, and Costa Rica are good teams by their right. And if, you know, we, we should always be at least in that top three. Mm-hmm. And I, I think even if we're not that much better from where we are now, just based, you know, where other teams are and their their growth as well over the next four years, I still think we're going to be at least, you know, we should be in that top three. But I think it's going to be about 10 to 15 years before you really start to see some serious change in, in how, you know, U.S. soccer is played because it starts with the children and the U.S. is finally starting to get behind um, – you know, coaching at a young age, it's, right. it's starting to become something important. You see in Europe where, um, kids are being coached by guys that were playing professional soccer when they're 10 years old. We have that in some places here, but we don't really have the appropriate academy system to kind of grow through like they have in Europe. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, um, as many good coaches as they have over there. And, you know, being a bigger country too, we're a lot more spread out. So it's a lot tougher to kind of play, um, in, in certain leagues. So I think there's kind of a couple, a couple challenges that we're going to have to get through that. I'm not sure how that's going to happen, but I think it's moving in the right direction. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you think kicking the pants based off of what has happened this year and the, and the response to kind of the, the disappointment uh, with, with not making the world cup this year. So you think that that would be, you know, for a similarly talented team, at least the, the impetus to get them over the edge because, you know, the U S was, was just one game away from, from making it in this year. So, Hopefully yeah. that is the case. Um, however, because that's that's not the case this year uh, or this upcoming World Cup, we are left without a team to root for in terms of a, of a patriotic sense. So we have to get creative in ways to to adopt new teams. And uh, five thirty eight, the wonderful website out there, uh, big data analytics website, um, published this tool that helps you pick. Uh, a World Cup team to get behind, which is perfect for someone like me who knows nothing about soccer and just wants to to blindly root for a team and maybe buy a jersey. Um, so we're going to go through this this tool uh, for for me live on the air, and it's going to spit out the, the team that's going to be going to be my my World Cup team. Um, you did it before this, and, and you got it. You got a team that actually made sense for you. Do you 
like if you had to pick before we even start, who am I gonna get? Oh, for you? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I forget what the questions were entirely, but if I if I were to think you, firstly, you know, fuck defense. You want to see some goals. You want to see a true. lot of goals. Um, so you're gonna want a team with a good offense. Maybe, you know, if their defense is good, that's fine, too, as long as they don't get scored on. But as long as they're scoring a lot of goals, you'll like it. Um, and like you said, Americans can kind of get behind the the whole, like, one player is, you know, not the team, but it's not necessarily a team sport. It's, you know, find find a couple guys that are just going to run the, run the team for you. So I think maybe Argentina, you know, you've got Messi, Higuain, Dybala. They've got an offense that is just absolutely, you know, overpowering yeah not a great defense but i think you know a good a very good team in there right and that that could be something you get i'm not 100 percent positive but I, i'm into that but i'm a little more i'm a little less mainstream to that like i could have told you i know who Iguain is and i know who messi is obviously so that's that's already okay. off to a bad start hey, I mean, so you don't know nothing yeah i need i need people i've never heard of before uh to get behind. okay and then i adopt so them. If, I, if i were to pick off based on that same criteria with a lesser known team I mean, I don't think you'll get it on this quiz, but Egypt. Yes. Shouts out uh, my boy Kareem Azeb from uh, who is <laughs> Egyptian and a huge Egypt. Plus, their kits are phenomenal. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, they they um they've got a guy on on Liverpool who's just been going off this year, Mohamed Salah, who's he's like he I don't you know I don't know any of their other players by name, so shame on me, but uh, he is just an absolute monster, and so. If you like watching a really fast guy run and score some goals, that that could be your team. Uh, that's why I like coming to watch you play soccer, right? Super fast. I am by no means fast. Uh, <laughs> how proud of of me are you that I said kits there? Uh, I'm pretty proud. You know, once you start saying pitch instead of field and, and match instead of game, we're we're on another level. But you lost until you're at that point. You lost yeah, already. You'll, you'll get there. Uh, all right, so so we'll do this quiz real quick. Uh, for me, I want a team that is either an underdog, could make some noise, or is a soccer powerhouse. Um, hmm. I think I'm into the noisemakers. I don't, I don't want a complete loser, but I want I want someone who who could make it through the the into the next round. All right, so just to stay a little different, I'm going to go with the powerhouse. I, underdogs are never going to win the World Cup. It, that's just not how it works. Okay. Uh, how important is teamwork to you? I don't mind a one-man army, or I'm all about squad goals. I think the squad goals label is stupid here, and I'm tired of that <laughs> phrase, so I'm going to go to the one-man army. Uh, I, as well, am tired of the phrase. I think you see it a little bit too much in social media. But, it, you know, that is the, the, pure, the pure soccer type thing, so I'm going to stick with the squad goals. Okay. Uh, offense versus defense. Do you want a team that's stronger on offense or stronger on defense? Um, the answer they have here is either I want a lot of goals or I'm going to fall asleep or I love a good 0-0 draw. I'm worried that I'm going to fall asleep because these games will be on at like 2 in the morning, which is a different thing. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go why not both? A little, a little bit more balance might help me out. I, I am also going to stick with why not both. I think, you know, I, I res- like I said earlier, I respect a good defense. I'm not good at it, but it, it is a, an important part of the game. And I think if you want a team to go all the way, you're going to need both of those things. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a moniker before that, that uh, like, defense is 85% trying. Is that part of your struggles with, with playing defense, do you think, in your career? I hope not. Because <laughs> if it is, I, 
I really could have made it, I swear. <laughs> we might have to have a, a former teammate come on and, and ver- verify. Uh, number four, passing. The halfback passed to the center, back to the wing, back to the center. I'm already lost. Uh, the two answers are please just shoot the ball or real teams set up their shots. I, I don't care about real teams. I think we've made this clear, so please just shoot the ball. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be opposite of you on that one. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, to be expected. Number five, physicality. A whistle blows and the game stops. If I wanted to see guys tackle each other, I'd watch the NFL. Uh, or, come on, ref, this isn't croquet. What What does that mean? Is it asking me... Uh, Do you want to see a more physical game? Or yeah, that, that is a weird one. I think the one on the left is about being more physical. Or No, I think the one on the left is saying... Oh, yeah, you're, no, you're right. Yes, the one on the right is more physical. Right. And the one on the left is less physical. That's a bad phrasing. Yeah. I, I don't want a physical soccer game because, yeah, I, I moving on. That, that question frustrates me. Uh, <laughs> American fan base at a bar watching a game. I'm okay being the only one who cares about the match or I'd enjoy meeting some expats wearing the same jersey. Um, this is true. I do love to meet random fellow fans at bars i i I don't know what expats are but i'm gonna i'm gonna i think think that's i think it's short for expatriate which means someone of your same country yeah well i think it's people who used to be new england patriots fans but now now they like soccer well no no that's definitely not i might be my theory uh last question goal question mark goal with like the american exclamation mark or man should i go for it goal i'm i'm really goal, 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 goal. <laughs> yes goal. yes, yes that one. uh i like that so one basically i think this question is saying do you want to support a spanish-speaking country or not see uh yeah i'm gonna, I'm gonna choose the the upside down exclamation mark and my team is Uruguay. All right, Uruguay. That's pretty close to Argentina. Uh, Luis Suarez, the the batter. Um, yeah, I, I can get behind that. Yeah, he's he's good. They've got Cavani, who's been really good this year with PSG. He's kind of one of those guys that you know, more the Clint Dempsey type. Put him in the box, and he's going to score you some goals. And um, you know, they've got a pretty solid all around squad. Um, I got. Belgium and France were my two ties, which I, I did this quiz earlier, so I, I already knew what I was going to get. But, um, you know, I'm excited to watch Belgium and, and France both because they're, you know, France has got one of the youngest squads. They've got a couple guys. I mean, they could probably field, you know, a, a team of 11 guys mm-hmm. that are under the age of 25 that could be challenging for the, the final, which is yeah. just crazy. I, I, I like this tool. I will reassess again when I when I take a look at everyone's everyone's kits. Uh, that'll that'll that is what made Ivory Coast my favorite team uh, a few World Cups ago. Big, big Croatia jersey fan. Really? Okay, I'll yeah. check that out. Uh, yeah. So so this might be the year I buy I buy a soccer jersey. So um, Egypt is in the front running right now, but we'll have to see. All right. Cool, man. Um, this was good. I feel I feel equipped to um, to at least know something about the game on Saturday, and I don't feel as bad about U.S. soccer, even though um, I feel like it's going to be a long time coming getting to it to where uh, we all want it to be. 
Mike, thanks for coming on. Um, I will let you enjoy the rest of your evening over there in, uh, in Cap Hill or wherever you are. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. This is a, you know, if you have any other, you know, soccer ideas to talk about, I'm your guy. I know, I know you don't have any other soccer friends, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch this game and it's going to be like the limitless pill for my, my soccer knowledge. I'll be like, I'll be like Ian Dark at the end of this thing. Well, if you look as good as Bradley Cooper, that's perfect, man. Hey, man, we're on our way. Uh, all right, buddy. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. Too complex. Much too complex. Too complex. Much too complex. Too complex. Too, too, too complex. Too, 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 too complex. Thanks again, folks, and sorry for the audio quality. Uh, my staff of one is really working on it for the next time we do this. Special thanks to Quinn, to Mike, and to Sixth Sense and the Kid Daytona for the song Too Complex. Peace. Thank you.